I'm James Randi, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You are listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 17. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Bökman. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sanalihup! Yay! Hello! Back Hello. again! <laughs> how are you guys? All right, how are you, Andres? My my voice is a bit down, uh, but I'm I'm trying to find my balance. I haven't been taking your homeopathy. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so my um, oscillococcinum uh, is waiting for me out in the kitchen. Mm, but, very good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Poor little duck. Had to die for it. Just one for the whole world, by the way, so it's... Yeah, it's not too much of a sacrifice. <laughs> um, yeah, um, we've been getting quite good uh, feedback for our latest interview with James the Amazing Randy. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, even uh, CSI, the Center for uh, Scientific Inquiry, uh, shared it uh, on their website. So, Yay. yeah, we're grateful for that. And um, I'd like to say... That we are very grateful to a gentleman with uh, the stage name Troithulu. Hope I'm pronouncing it well. But uh, we found a very nice short review he wrote about our show. It's uh, actually from a while back, as it was uh, written in January. But uh, for some reason, it escaped our radar. But but never mind. We finally found it. From time to time, uh, I have to say, he also tweets about our episodes. So it's very kind of him. Great. Thank you very much, man. Uh, we're really happy you find it worth talking about. And uh, we'll link to uh, the, the actual post about that. Yeah, a few uh, technical things. Uh, some people try to subscribe to our uh, email notifications. Uh, we wouldn't call it a newsletter just yet, but you can subscribe on the website to email notifications about new posts. Uh, not necessarily only uh, new episodes that come out, but uh, also posts about uh, new developments, new things about the website itself. If something else comes up, we have a crazy idea to share, uh, we might write a post about it. Yeah, there were small problems, but uh, I'm happy to say that it's resolved. Now, it's only a one-step subscription, so be careful, because once you hit that button, you're subscribed to our email notifications. Forever. Forever. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, you can you can unsubscribe, oh, but to unsubscribe, you have to go through a three-step process. Uh, it's much more difficult. So you can't leave us once you've subscribed. I would like to talk about the Flying Unicorn Award 2015. It's an award that 
it's a sarcastical award created by Comtet, the Portuguese skeptic community. Um, and during 2015, uh, Comtet readers and followers suggest personalities and organizations that contributed to the propagation of pseudoscience, superstition and other disinformation damaging to society. And in the creating of this award, um, the concept uh, organization was inspired by JRF's uh, Pegasus Award. And so the winners uh, have been announced on the 1st of April. Uh, there were three categories. There was a gramophone category, which is for the media, shooting star for famous personalities, and the Empress New Clothes for any other personality or organization that contributed to the propagation of false or unproven ideas. And the Gramophone Award went to Newspaper's Eye. Um, after a series of completely uncritical pieces on the practices of exorcism, uh, Journal Eye presented uh, the readers with another set of articles on homeopathy. Articles promoting classical pro-homeopathy argument that goes from the selective attention of scientific studies to reasons like, my experience tells me that that works, um, it works in animals, and or there are doctors who believe in homeopathy and it serves uh, as a proof. Um, and if there were doubts, the purpose of these articles, the own executive director Victor uh, Rhino admits, is in publishing his belief in homeopathy and com uh, compatibility with modern medicine. So there we go, this is the newspaper I that got the, the um, award for that. Shooting Star Award went to Simone de Oliveira. Simone is a very famous and respected actress and singer with a career that spans into the 60s. Now she's lending, maybe selling her image, to the promotion of calcitrin, a calcium supplement uh, touted to do all sorts of miracles to your bones and health. The College of Pharmacists and the College of Physicians have both stepped forward in condemning the dangerous publicity still running in major TV, on major TV channels. Uh, the problem is not having an actress do publicity. The problem is that when questioned about it by the press, she actually defended the supplement, claiming that the college, uh, colleges were only complaining because this was a natural solution that the big pharma didn't like. So here is the, you know, our favorite logical fallacy natural if it's natural it's good whatever and big pharma of course big pharma everything is big pharma um and the new emperor's clothes award went to higher edu education institution uh for launching degrees in alternative ther therapies that's pretty major and pretty uh, scary so um there was a new legislation uh, now unconventional therapists, as they seem to like to call themselves, need to have a higher degree in the field they promote. At least eight higher education institutions, both private and public, have jumped on the opportunity and will be offering courses in naturopathy, acupuncture and other quackeries. Among them is the Red Cross. So now this um, un unfounded practices are legitimized not only by terrible law, but by the higher education degrees. So they now be, will be able to tell, look, I've got master degree in homeopathy or whatever it is. Um, and those are the three, the three awards, uh, the Flying Unicorn Awards. Worrying development, I guess. Um, and it just means we have to keep fighting against the um, pseudoscience. And I think uh, Comtept is doing a great job in Portugal. Um, spreading the um, 
information, etc. And awards like this help get attention and uh, get people reading and hopefully engage them in discussions. So, Yeah. And now that you mentioned uh, Diana, let me say something else. I'd like to make a self-correction. And that's regarding one of the most recent topics I covered on the show. You know the one with the Tribeca Film Festival? Mm-hmm. Robert De Niro and... Uh, Andrew oh, Wakefield yeah. and Robert mm-hmm. De Niro. And the Vaxxed, yeah. yeah. Were you wrong, well, it's, it's weird. It's weird even mentioning these two names in one sentence, I have to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A medical fraud and a real giant in the art of film. That's... Oh, wow. Yeah, I have to say that I could be the subject in, in one of your really wrong segments, Pontus. <laughs> And what's weird about this is that I haven't even noticed how wrong I was until I uh, I was notified by a fellow skeptic and fantastic activist, Diana, from Portugal, whom we all know. And uh, she drew my attention to my mistake by asking for the source to one of my claims. So what claim is it that I'm talking about? I made the claim that, according to some sources, De Niro helped even with the funding of the film in question. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. He did embrace the film for a while, for personal reasons, uh, being personally touched by the content, and he wanted the, the debate to go on, but he did not finance it and was not involved financially. Um so contrary to what I, I, I said on the show, there was absolutely no source that mentioned any contribution of that nature on uh, the Nero's part. So thus, I have to say, I made a false allegation for which I apologize uh, to both Robert De Niro, who most likely doesn't even know that I did that. Well, he listens to the show. <laughs> yeah, the probably. Show. He totally does. Uh, <laughs> but I think more importantly to our audience. Yeah. And I do hope I didn't make anyone hate him for something he hadn't even done. Because actually his actions were uh, quite respectable, in my opinion. I A decision like that, uh, that of withdrawing a film, that addresses something he had such a close personal connection to man it really requires character and courage yeah but I that's mean good it. yeah so hats off to robert de niro for understanding the outcry about that film and uh, and its contents as to my mistake how and why that thought of him to be financially involved entered my mind and then made it to the show still puzzled me uh, well, I I do know how it happened because I left it in when editing the show. But uh, how it slipped my skeptical lens in uh, post-production um, tells me a lot about how flawed my mind is. Despite my greatest efforts to be thorough all the time. Uh, but since this kind of misinformation is exactly what we set out to try and stop from happening and spreading... It is a great thing I couldn't get away with it. So I am very grateful to our friend Diana um, to point out that uh, something was not right about my summary. Thank you very much. If, if you find something wrong about what we're saying, please don't hesitate to let us know. Let, we... let Pontus know and he can use it in his segment. Absolutely. Was very Pontus, long. Pontus could have used it. 
my being wrong could have been used in his <gasps> segment. Awesome. And now it can't. Yeah, please, please let us know if you think something is not necessarily right about what we're saying, because uh, we don't want to spread bullshit around. What we want to to provide is proper information, and we try our best to provide it to you, and try our best to to be thorough. But we are humans; we make mistakes. So let us know if that happens. Uh, but if it's not that why you want to write to us, uh, but because you like the show, because you like the ideas that we're trying to propagate here, uh, write to us too. We would love to know what you think about our show, and. If you could do that on iTunes, that would be fantastic. Writing an iTunes review um, accompanied by five stars, it would be better than fantastic. So we would really appreciate that. Just get in touch. As always, you can contact us um, by uh, following us on Twitter. And our handle on Twitter is at espodcast underscore eu. Uh, or you can email us. Our email address is info at theesp.eu we've got a website theesp.eu and you can like us on Facebook and follow our updates on there great, thank you very much and I think it's time to move on to one of our regular segments Yelena hello tell us please why this day is special on this day, um, on the 6th of April 1961, Jules Jean-Baptiste Vincent Bordet died. Uh, he, was, uh, he was born on the 13th of June 1870, not that it's relevant, but anyways. Uh, he was a Belgian immunologist and microbiologist, and he received his Doctor of Medicine from Free University of Brussels in 1892. And um, he discovered phagocytosis of Bacteria by white blood cells. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Phagocytosis. Okay. Um, yeah, in 1906, he isolated the bacterium responsible for whooping cough. And this is what he became the most famous for, which is named um, after him. Uh, Bordetella uh, pertussis. Pertussis, yeah. Um, for which he developed a, a vaccine later on. Um, he isolated a number of other pathogenic bacteria for, which, uh, for his um, discovery of, of immunity factor in blood serum. He later received the Nobel uh, Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1919. Um, this development was vital to the diagnosis and treatment of many dangerous uh, contagious bacterial diseases. Uh, for example, it is the basis for the uh, Wasserman test for syphilis. Now, a vaccine is a very uh, controversial topic because we know the, with the rise of active vaccination movement and the spe specifically whooping cough um, vaccine have, has been very effective in, in the past years. The whooping cough is a very serious um, disease, um, it's a very highly infectious disease, which can lead to serious complications, including death in babies. Um, and is a major cause of infant death worldwide. So the World Health Organization estimated that in 2008, there were about 60 million cases of uh, pertussis, i.e. whooping cough, and that about 195,000 children died from the disease. And however, vaccination has led to a big reduction in infant deaths in, in recent years. Um, 
and uh, who estimated that in 2008 global vaccination against pertussis uh, averted about 687,000 deaths, which is fantastic. Mm. However, um, in 2000, during 2014, the cases of whooping cough in America uh, were pr- reported to have increased by 15%. And of course, there were all sorts of speculations of why that could be. And one of the reasons was the rise of the anti-vaccination movement and drop of the vaccination rates. Um, and the other was that the uh, vaccines uh, were not as effective. But um, I'm not sure. I haven't done enough research on the on the second part of that. Of that, but we all know full well how big and how uh, vocal the anti-vaccination movement has been in a couple in the last couple of years. So Jules Bordet uh, and his uh, whooping cough vaccines. There you go. Yeah, I think his name is pronounced Bordet. Bordet without the T. Yeah. Oh. Jules Jean Baptiste Vin- uh, Vincent Bordet. Bordet. Mm. something like that I'm not an expert in French did you learn it? I took French in school I took probably about six months French do do you think this is how you say it then Pontus? Jules Jean-Baptiste Vincent Bordet oui okay (laughs) it's a beautiful language thank you very much Helena it's amazing what he achieved uh, he didn't figure out how the immune system works in general. That, that's that's too vague to, to say. But uh, he figured out um, a very important part of it, the complement system. But isn't it weird uh, for a, a bacteria species, especially such a, a harmful one, being named after you? <laughs> you mean I wouldn't yeah, want she... I wouldn't want a bacterium that kills people named after me. <laughs> it's oh. <laughs> I, I think I think you won't have anyway, but yeah, I understand what yeah, you mean. Yeah, yeah, but even if even if I did research into microbiology, I wouldn't want that. Hmm. Never mind. So thank you very much, Helena. Let's move on to discussing a few of the events uh, happening in Europe. What are we gonna have in the coming week? Uh, if you're traveling around Europe and uh, you're in different parts of the continent that we are mentioning here, you're lucky because you're going to be able to join fellow skeptics. Uh, first of all, if you feel like um, having a discussion about intelligent design, the best place to be on Thursday the 7th is the Teesside Skeptics in the Pub in uh, Middlesbrough, uh, Middlehaven. Because the case for intelligent design is the title of their talk by an actual intelligent design believer uh, who promotes the so-called scientific theory of intelligent design. So if someone listening to this show uh, is going to be there, we would love to hear how it went. I expect it to be good fun. On the same day, Thursday the 7th of April, uh, there will be a Liverpool Skeptics in the Pub social. Um, and you can find more details on their website. Uh, go and join them if you're around for good times and good conversation. And the next day, on Friday the 8th, if you're in Santiago de Compostela in uh, Spain, you can listen to um, a lecture about transgenics and GMOs. Uh, whether they are a valid and a safe option. 
Uh, and this is uh, first in a series of lectures that uh, the University of Santiago de Compostela offers uh, in the coming weeks. On Saturday, the 9th, uh, in Uppsala, it'll be the yearly meeting of the Swedish skeptics. I know it might be confusing because we've said that a couple of times, but that's have been the <laughs> local chapters. This is the real <laughs> big thing. So Uppsala is just north of Stockholm, and that's where the big yearly meeting will be this year. There will be speeches. There will be uh, Marit Simonsen from the Norwegian Skeptics will be there. There will be the prize ceremony for the Enlightener of the Year Award. So, And I'm going to be there. It's a full-day event, and it's a dinner at, uh, in the evening. So be there. It's going to be really fun. Is, is Uppsala as nice a city as, as Stockholm? I will. It's very nice. I've been I've been there. My my one of my best friends lives there, and it's really lovely. Mm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I love it. It's yep. it's a very very small city, um, very small city center, but it's got a couple of big universities. Um, I think that they rank quite highly in in Sweden. If correct me if I'm wrong, Pontus. No. No. Yes. Yes. And I think they also actually rank quite highly in Europe, to be honest. Yeah, I think uh, Uppsala University is is uh, very highly ranked. It's uh, in terms in world, terms of research. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in terms, of, in terms of quality, but it's also like a lovely old town, and yeah, it's a nice place. Um, on the same day, um, on the second of on the same day on the 9th of April, um, there will be a Madrid skeptics in the pub where witchcraft uh, in the university and other public institutions will, will be discussed with Fernando Fries. Um, you can find more information on their website. Um, and if you go to our um, website, the ESP.eu events in Europe, you can find the links and description. And there you can also find that on the 11th, on the Monday, 11th of April in Copenhagen, there will be uh, skeptics in the pub about reptiles and ethics. Now, I'm not sure how they get those two subjects together, but it should be very interesting to attend. Oh, it must be about the world-dominating reptilians. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're talking about the Illuminati and how yeah, they yeah, will yeah. take over. And okay. Yeah, okay, probably. And I, I, probably. I assume you won't be there. I am busy. <laughs> <laughs> You're a busy person. I, am so, I will uh, be there one of these days and I'll let you know, but this time i can't make it sure. i'm <laughs> okay afraid. you keep saying that never mind i'm not pushing you anything just saying no no <laughs> they should be pushing you okay uh so that's it for the coming week and um hope you'll find something interesting among these and uh especially if you can attend one of these that's brilliant thank you very much let's move on to a few topics to discuss We talked a lot about homeopathy lately. Uh, now I think it's time to take a look at uh, other fields of uh, alternative practices. It was on Edzard Ernst's blog that I first came across an interesting topic concerning NICE. Um, that's the British National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, formerly known as uh, National Institute for Clinical Excellence hence the acronym N-I-C-E, or NICE. But what's the news? Apparently, uh, this body no longer recommends acupuncture, chiropractic, 
or osteopathy to patients with uh, low back pain, according to their March 24th press release regarding the new draft guidelines. No longer... Well, that implies they used to. And it just happens to be the case. Um, Guardian article from back in 2009 reported that NICE recommended that the millions of people who develop persistent non-specific low back pain receive up to 9 sessions of spinal manipulation or 10 sessions of acupuncture over 12 weeks on the NHS. The British, the British National Health Service. Now, we're talking about 2.6 million workers and an estimated loss of 5 million working days due to the condition. Among the proposed changes, um, there would have also been a cut in therapeutic injections, MRI and X-ray scans. So, what this basically was about is cutting the costs to the NHS and relieving GPs from the task of dealing with chronic conditions that were believed to be possible to tackle with uh, some alternative practices. Professor Steve Field, chairman of the Royal College of General Practitioners, welcomed the guidelines back then. And I quote, This is good news for GPs and patients. Most GPs deal with patients with backache every day of the week. Uh, so what? But he went on to say, I welcome the endorsement of some complementary therapies for which there is a clearer evidence base. And that's where some well-informed criticism came in, mainly expressed by uh, Professor Edzard Ernst, who pointed out the lack of evidence for effectiveness and the potential risks included with these treatments. As of now... These practices are available in some areas in the UK on the NHS, according to the NHS website. If you have a condition that is suggested to be treatable by these manipulations, you are advised to consult your GP to find out if you are eligible uh, in your area uh, to be covered by the NHS for that. But now, it seems at least nice have come to their senses. Um... Professor Mark Baker, clinical practice director for NICE, was quoted stating, Regrettably, there is a lack of convincing evidence of effectiveness for some widely used treatments. The draft guideline mentions acupuncture, chiropractic spine manipulations and osteopathic practices specifically. Professor Baker also said, This is because there is not enough evidence to show that it is more effective than sham treatment. What they do recommend is exercise. And instead of the, the widely used paracetamol in the UK, they also advise non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen or aspirin to be tried first. Now, that's quite interesting because, you know, at least for chiropractic, it says it doesn't work, but perhaps maybe there are some evidence for treating lower back pain. But now, not even that. Mm, nope. Well, the NHS website still claims it is a viable option for treating LBP, that's uh, low back pain, but um, the truth is they haven't been found effective beyond placebo. Mm. And the signal-to-noise ratio in even the studies with somewhat positive outcomes is just terribly low. 
and uh, and this was shown by the systematic reviews um, mentioned also in Professor Ernst's blog uh, we're linking to on the show notes. And of course, placebo or non-specific effects of manipulation, as uh, it is often referred to, is an intriguing thing that needs to be studied. But the question remains whether it should be paid for by the NHS and thus ultimately by the taxpayers. All right. So we'll go over to Switzerland then, which uh, has uh, and I'm very unfortunate, almost the contrary uh, thing is happening there because in Switzerland, uh, they are now endorsing uh, alternative medicine as part of the health uh, insurance. And we will talk more about this in our interview later in this show. But in, in, in short, in 2005, uh, so-called complementary therapies were rejected from the health insurance for lack of efficacy by the authorities. Uh, but there was a referendum in, in 2009 that showed that two-thirds of the population of Switzerland wanted these therapies back. The result is that from 2017, uh, the Swiss Interior Ministry has decided to give these therapies the same status as conventional medicine. So uh, this is really bad news, and uh, it's very disappointing coming from a country like Switzerland, which we, well, at least I, felt was pretty uh, scientifically minded. And uh, so the thing is, now we are apparently voting about uh, what works instead of listening to the facts and the science. Yeah, yeah so we, we were so shocked about these news that we decided to ask the president of uh, Skeptica Schweiz, uh, the Swiss skeptical organization, about this. So coming up later on the show. Let's see another topic in which uh, details and facts don't really matter to people. About two weeks ago, a terrible series of terrorist attacks happened in Brussels, mm. leaving 32 victims and three suicide bombers dead and about 300 injured, for which the Islamic State claimed responsibility. Of course, a lot of people link this to the refugee crisis and totally confuse it with problems with immigration and stuff. But I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is the popping up of hoaxes and fake or recycled footage all over the internet in the aftermath of these terrible events. Only a couple of hours after the bombings, several videos started to circulate in the internet and they, of course, were shared like crazy on social media platforms as, as the outrage started to grow and grow all over Europe. One of the most popular among these was a video that turned out to be a footage made in 2011 in Moscow International Airport. And um, I'll try to pronounce the name of it now. Domodedovo. Ah, Domodedovo. Domodedovo. Oh my. I couldn't have been further out. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the emphasis uh, in Russian words. It's a funny way of, yeah. Okay, so in the airport of... Damadedova. Thank you. <laughs> and the other one was uh, recorded in the airport of Minsk, the capital of Belarus, in the same year, 2011. But that didn't occur to anyone but a few who actually took the time and effort to try and find out if they were real. 
like those guys at BuzzFeed.com. Most of the people just shared those without asking questions, as it usually happens with many videos, photos and articles. Another footage was used as one from Brussels that was actually taken from the bombing in Madrid in 2004. So that's how old a footage can be and posted as as a recent one. Furthermore, um, it started to circulate that the Russian Secret Service had informed Brussels that two brothers from Belarus were uh, who had converted to Islam had been planning an attack. According to the International Business Times, the information seems to be originating from the Russian news outlet Life News. Now, Belgian authorities happen not to agree, and the two brothers have even been interviewed. For suicide bombers behind these attacks, I would say they seem to be pretty alive and well. But of course, it cannot be stated without doubt that they have no intention to do something of the kind, or uh, they were not involved at all um, in this Brussels bombing. But considering the fact that Life News has a reputation of accusing people of Islamic State connections that are not necessarily uh, supported by evidence, their claims should be taken with a pinch of salt. And the list goes on. But probably the weirdest among these hoaxes and ideas is the crying woman. Of course, it's an inevitable part of all catastrophes like this to have at least one conspiracy theory uh, formulated around them. And the Brussels bombing appears to be no exception at all. So, some claim that photos showing crying people at the scenes of five shootings and bombings around the world all have the same woman appearing on them. According to these claims, all of these happenings are part of a massive conspiracy. And that woman is an actress hired to do the crying. Well, Snopes debunked that claim months ago, as they found out that those four included before the Brussels attack were actually four well-identified individuals. But of course, this didn't stop some idiots uh, from adding a picture from the latest crisis and circulating the same story with it. But this is not only ridiculous, in my opinion, but outrageous. Why? Because it tries to deny the reality of these dreadful happenings and act as if the real problem was not existent. By the way, have you noticed that proponents of conspiracy theories on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms do not possess the ability to spell properly? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but it seems to be a thing. <laughs> there should be some statistics about that. Oh, and um, there's this guy uh, I, I know from one of my uh, former workplaces, and he recently sent me a picture on Facebook. We've been having arguments about the refugee crisis and immigration for a while, um, as he holds this utterly xenophobic and racist view that we should kill them all uh, or send them back to where they are coming from, as they're all potential terrorists. Uh, and and look, I was right; they they did another bombing, etc. And he sends me over a picture 
depicting bleeding people sitting on the streets, asking me if I agree with what I see on the photo. Look what this situation led to, he said. Uh, I asked him only one question. Do you know where and when this photo was taken? And he replied, does it matter? Wow. And that tells you a lot about how people fall for these stories. We don't tend to check the background or question the stories we are being fed, right? Yeah. We just believe everything coming from the media, the internet, etc. If it's written down, if it was told on the news, it must be true. No, but the amazing thing is also that for some people it doesn't matter. So if you point out this is not true and then say, well, but it could have been. And that makes it okay. Totally amazing. People don't have this conception that something coming from the media is not necessarily true. But the most terrible part of this, in my opinion, is that when you take a position that refugees turn into terrorists in large numbers and you accept a photo from a totally unconnected event from probably years back as evidence to that, then there's no way anyone can can convince you otherwise. But the more of these you find, the stronger your belief becomes that it's all true. So it's a confirmation bias that is very strong. So I find the work done by Snopes and BuzzFeed very important in that regard. We have to point out how bad an effect these fakes and hoaxes have on, on our views and ultimately the decisions made by our politicians or ourselves for that matter. I'll link to some of the, the stories uh, mentioned here in the show notes. Um, they're really worth going through them. Well, uh, I think that's all we had for today in terms of skepticism-related topics from Europe. And uh, now it's time to move on to our interview with Marko Kovic from the Swiss skeptical organization Skeptica Schweiz. Every week, we interview someone who represents a skeptical organization, group or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. This time, we have here with us social science researcher Marko Kovic, president of the Swiss skeptical organization Skeptica Schweiz and a think tank called Zurich Institute of Public Affairs Research. He is also host of the German-speaking skeptical podcast Skeptisch. Marko. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. There was a good enough reason for us to have you right now at this time. Um, obviously, uh, we would have uh, get to you uh, sooner or later. But there are things happening in Switzerland that made it to the news, I think, all over the world. So can you tell me what's going on in your country? Yeah, I wish I wish we didn't have this occasion to to have uh, met up online, but there you go. So Switzerland is in many respects a progressive country and unfortunately it's progressive uh, towards complementary and alternative medicine in that it treats CAM almost as if it wasn't CAM. Oh. So many people like complementary medicine in Switzerland as they do in many countries across Europe and globally. 
But in Switzerland, we actually have laws now that basically treat some CAM disciplines the same as evidence-based medicine. And that is troubling. Could you tell us a, something about how your um, healthcare system works and uh, how is it provided? And if that means that these alternative therapies and alternative treatments will be included? So the Swiss, uh, the Swiss health, healthcare system is a little bit special. We do have universal healthcare. Mm -hmm. But we do not have a public healthcare provider. For example, in the UK, we have the NHS, but we do not have that in Switzerland. So it's only private companies. And there's a basic healthcare that everyone has to have. That's the universality of it. And then you can buy additional uh, healthcare packages for many things that, that are optional, basically. And for a long time, for the longest time, if people wanted to have CAM, so if people wanted their healthcare providers to pay for their alternative medicine treatments, they had to buy such an additional package that not everybody had to have. Hmm. Now we need to go back a little bit to 2009, because back then a so-called popular initiative passed at the ballot. And maybe you guys know that Switzerland is very special in terms of politics. We have a lot of direct democracy. And the popular initiative is if you collect 100,000 signatures, you can propose a change to the constitution. And that's exactly what happened in 2009. Uh, such a change was accepted overwhelmingly, I have to say. And now we have in the constitution, I'll just read it out. The Confederation and the Cantons shall, within the scope of their powers, ensure that consideration is given to complementary medicine. So we are, I believe, the only country on this planet that says in its constitution you have to uh, include complementary medicine. Or at and least what, consider, which is uh, yeah, yeah. vaguely, vaguely worded enough to, to allow everything to come in. That's where the politics comes in, because, as you say, that's very vague and you can't specifically say what it should mean. But the politics has turned this into you have to include it. And that's why we have arrived where we are today. That sounds absolutely devastating. It's it's like uh, when common sense and and science is just thrown out in the window. Wow. And what would... What's with all this uh, direct democracy, with all these referendums in Switzerland that we hear a lot about? One would think that for a referendum, people should be well informed. But would you say that people who are voting for, for these changes are well informed? That's actually one of the things that I'm interested in in my research. I believe that there's a mix there's a mix of let's say informed preferences so people really know a lot about what they're voting on and the other thing is let's say reacting to partisan cues so if party a says that's a good thing many people will just follow that and there's also 
emotion, I think, at play. So when people think that something is a bad thing, a good thing, they will emotionally respond to it. So people get mobilized by emotion. And I think that's a little bit of what happened in 2009. And that wasn't the only occasion where that happened. Can, sorry, can you clarify a little bit about what, what, what this means? Because it says this will be in effect from May in 2017. But mm -hmm. there's a provision saying, but they have to show efficacy or something like that. So how does that work? Because they will not be able to, to provide efficacy or prove efficacy for these things. Uh, maybe for the listeners, I should clarify what exactly is supposed to be included. So it's not all complementary medicine, but just four disciplines, so-called tra uh, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, anthroposophic medicine, I don't know if you guys know what it is, and, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and phytotherapy, so plant-based medicine. And that's only those four and not any of the many other disciplines or, or ideas that exist around. And what happened was that the process began in 2012 when those disciplines were first provisionally included with the proviso that, well, you should demonstrate efficacy, you should demonstrate that it works. And now the final decision that has been made, well, they saw, and that's the explanation of the, uh, the Bundesrat, that's our executive here, they said, they explained, well, we cannot prove that it works, and that's why we'll give them a blank check if you want, and include them anyway. That's crazy. <laughs> What's the basis for, for these four disciplines to be chosen? It's, in my opinion, completely arbitrary, but they say you have to have some tradition in the use of it. So it's appeal to tradition. It's a fallacy. Especially when we're talking about uh, Chinese medicine. It's exactly. Yeah, propagated by Mao. And they say that the, to be considered for inclusion, the, the medicine or so-called medicine in question needs to have been around for about 30 years and in Europe for around 15 years. So that's the, the only, let's say, half a rational decision-making uh, tool that they have provided for this. But basically everyone knows it's just, it's just lobbying of the groups who provide these specific types of medicines. So there's no proving the efficacy as such. They don't have to do that. Well, it does say the need to prove that it works. And they even mentioned peer-reviewed journals and such. But that was in there for the whole period of the uh, provisional status that it had. So what it comes down to, if a doctor decides to prescribe such medicine, it's going to be mm -hmm. the healthcare provider will take care of it. So there's no, no measure or no means to exclude those medicines or to prove that they don't work because the level of evidence that exists right now seems to be sufficient for them for them yeah if that's all that they require and it's not necessarily a scientific body that decides whether it's acceptable but it's let's say a political body 
it's all the same. So they can they can say that okay, it's a peer-reviewed journal that we published an article in a paper and look at that. It says it works. And there is no word of of the quality of the research, no word of uh, whether it was a placebo-controlled double-blind trial. So it's it's like whatever goes. Yeah, it sounds crazy, but that's basically the way it is. So it does say you need to have some sort of clinical trials, but clinical trial can mean many things. You can just have some sort yeah. of observational study and come to the conclusion that people who, let's say, uh, take homeopathy on their chemotherapy, that they feel better. And we know, you know, rationally why they do feel better. But as evidence goes, this is enough to say it works mm -hmm. in this context. So it's yeah. it's very, very unsatisfactory. Well, and well. dangerous. And dangerous. It is. But let me just dwell on, on, on this situation a bit, because I, I'd like to understand. So this change came about because of a referendum. Exactly. A referendum that that resulted in uh, the change of the constitution. A hundred thousand signatures are necessary for the referendum to take place. And the referendum, what what was the result of the referendum exactly? Do you know the uh, the proportions of of the actual votes? It was over sixty percent in favor of the change. Wow. A great majority. And do you know what the turnout was? The turnout was, I believe, fairly low. So the turnout in Switzerland is generally below 50%, and that one was as well. Okay. So that means we don't know uh, if those who are who are silent just don't care, or they would have been against the, the motion, but... Uh, they didn't feel like turning up and vote for it. So this is terrible. What can you do as an organization, as activists? You talked about lobbying on the other side. Yeah, yeah. Can you do that too? I think we have to. We have to. But can you? It takes a lot of work. It takes resources. But Switzerland, you, there are some things that maybe you could say are not optimal such as this change of the constitution. But the good thing is Switzerland is fairly small and people are generally willing to talk to each other. Hmm. So if you try to reach politicians, you can do so. I did so in different contexts for some research and people are approachable. And that is... A good thing and the thing that we have to make use of because ultimately you have to influence I mean this doesn't sound nice but you have to influence and convince people who hold power who are decision makers of those ideas because most politicians don't care about evidence-based medicine they care about voters they care about getting re-elected they care about the public image and if you work those triggers and if you you know, try to convince people of things and 
do also exert some pressure, things are possible, I believe. Yeah. It is, it is just to add a little bit of a different approach than what we skeptics are used to doing. I mean, what we usually do are things like this podcast right now, try to provide information to as many people as possible, to the public, and just change hearts and minds. But, you know, in Switzerland, when it comes to medicine, it failed. This approach just failed. I think it's not just Switzerland. And we've talked about it before, haven't we, with uh, Professor William Betts, who who said there is enough information out there. The research has been done, the science has spoken, but people don't want to listen. So something else needs to be done. Um, th the change has to come from, well, we were talking about the um, the legal action and approaching politicians and changing laws. Exactly. And that doesn't mean you can combine the two. Mm. You know, I wouldn't want any skeptical organization to turn into pure lobbying thing. But trying to be a you know public club in a sense as we are now and combining that with a think tank approach i believe that's that has to be the way of the future if you want to really achieve things absolutely i i think we all agree yep. and there is a huge danger in this namely that it will be possible to use this as a precedent in other countries oh yeah yeah that Look what happened in Switzerland. We can do the same. And these lobbying groups for alternative medicine are very strong. They have huge power and resources because they make a lot of money out of this thing. And that puts us into a very difficult position, skeptics, I mean. So we do have to do some uh, some, some things. Uh What is it that Skeptica Schweiz does? Uh, what are your main activities? Uh, how do you try to achieve the goals? Because, yeah, lobbying is one thing that, that you're going to try to do that. But, uh, of course, if this could happen, it could happen the other way around if you have enough people on your side uh, from the public. So what are your activities that you're trying to use to achieve that goal? I wish I could say that we have already implemented the things that we want to do, but we are actually right now in the process of changing what we do and the way we do it. So one of the things that have impact, and impact is, I believe, an important term here, are sort of papers, discussion papers, that are summarizing some problems and that you can direct at some stakeholders. So one of the things that we have in preparation is a discussion paper called uh, What's the Harm? Collateral mm -hmm. Damage of, of uh, Complementary and Alternative Medicine, where we don't want to talk about does homeopathy work? We know it doesn't, but we want to talk about the other, other thing that is convincing many people that it's harmless because people say, well, if it doesn't work, what's the harm? And we believe there's a lot of harm. There's three or four dimensions of harm. And when you make that argument in a in compact enough way that people are willing to consume that, to read it, um, people take you seriously. And this is trivial maybe, but policymakers take you more seriously if you actually write out a paper that you can print out or you know download as a PDF then if you just 
write something on your blog or something like that. So there's just the perception of quality of information uh, that is based on the medium that it is delivered on. This this is almost silly, but those are the things that we are really thinking about now very thoroughly. And we are also trying to learn, you know, from the other side. So how do the groups and the organizations that are successful in Switzerland in those areas, how do they operate? And when you look at how they do it, well, one thing is really uh, policy papers, white papers, and the other thing is bilateral contact. So doing things always publicly can estrange people. So if you criticize CAM via the media or in blogs, podcasts, it's maybe not as easy to get access than if you try to be discreet about it, just to some degree, at least. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to, to, you know, do both, both, both things at once. So just to be, as we are right now, a very publicly oriented uh, organization that does things for everyone, but to combine that with directly interacting with uh, stakeholders, with policymakers, in order to impact those people, you know, rationally, as rational as possible, and to maybe make them think about things in ways that they did not think about them before. So that's the, the in a very broad sense, our strategy going going forward. So, so how big is the Swiss skeptical movement? How many members do you have? We are actually fairly small. We have about 300 members. I wouldn't call that fairly small. <laughs> but that's, that's interesting because we didn't, we had no measures of actively recruiting people. So everyone who's with us now has come to us on their own terms or out of their own interest. But that's one of the things that we need to begin thinking about. How can we actually recruit people to join us, um, you know, actively from our side? Uh, I think there's a lot of potential in Switzerland. So, so if the Swiss people are listening to this podcast, how can they sign up? How can they contact the, the organization? It's very easy. The most efficient way is to go to www.skeptiker.com with a K dot CH or www.swissskeptics with a C dot CH. And then at the very landing page, there's a form to join us. And we'll, of course, uh, add those links to the show notes as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> are you, are you planning as an organization uh, putting up events like the um, skeptic conferences, etc.? Or have you done in the past? We actually have done so. In 2014, we have, in cooperation with the Free Thinking Association of Switzerland, conducted the Denkfest. The Denkfest is very similar to the other skeptical um, you know, events, conferences. So it was three and a half days of science, critical thinking, and science uh, comedy, science art. And we're going to do that again in 2017, on the occasion of the uh, Zwingli uh, 500-year celebration. 
Zwingli was a reform, reformist uh, back in the day when Catholicism was uh, dominating and he was basically the Swiss counterpart of Luther in Germany. So we're going to be talking about religion a lot on the next Denkfest. Oh, cool. Okay. And is, is there um, an active cooperation among uh, German-speaking organizations like uh, that in uh, Germany, GUP, or uh, that in Austria? There is cooperation mainly between the uh, GWP, the German organization, organization, and us in Switzerland. But I have to admit it's not a systematic cooperation. So we should be doing much more together than we are right now. But we do have a constant line of, of contact. Mm. Are you going to be appearing on, at uh, SCAPCON? Unfortunately, I think at that time I'll be at another conference in the United States where I have to present some a bunch of studies. Oh. But I would have loved to be there. So what conference in America are you going to? It's called the WAPOR, World Association of Public Opinion Research. And I'm presenting two studies that are not directly linked to skepticism, but maybe there's a little bit of critical thinking in terms of uh, cognitive biases in there. So one of the studies is about the elections in Switzerland that took place last year. And the other one is about what we call digital astroturfing. So things like fake online comments and uh, what to do about them. Cool. Hmm. Interesting. And that has a lot to do with your uh, professional background, right? Exactly. Mm. To really summarize this, uh, it's absolutely shocking uh, what's going on there. And uh, yeah, we keep saying that as good skeptics do. We keep our fingers crossed for you. But what is it that others in Europe or anywhere in the world can help you with uh, in fighting this situation? Or tackling this problem? I think that the single most important thing is to care about the issue. Hmm. So I believe that a silent majority exists that supports evidence-based medicine, that supports science, but unless we express those opinions and preferences in a way that policymakers can take notice, things are not going to change. Because policymakers do the things that they think the majority does, and the majority is, in the end, are those people who voice their opinions. So unless we begin voicing our opinions more strongly and publicly and with confidence, things cannot change. I think that's the best thought to close the, the interview with. Uh, Marko Kovic, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And it was great to have you on the show. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Goodbye. Yalala. Uh, that will be me. Do you have a juicy logical fallacy for us? Oi. <laughs> uh, okay. Yes. Um, so today I just want to quickly mention this fallacy called stolen concept fallacy. Um, and it's a good one. It's a, 
basically when you're acquiring the, tr the truth of the something that you are simultaneously trying to disprove. So, for example, it's better explained in examples. Um, reason and logic are not always reliable, so we should not count on it to help us find the truth. And basically here we're using reason to disprove the validity of reason, which is unreasonable, reasonably speaking. Do you know where I'm, go you know where I'm going with that? That's good. Wow. Um, yes. And uh, the other example I've got, actually, uh, is um, slightly tight. Well, um, during our interview, the, interview, uh, the uh, creationists were mentioned in Switzerland. So basically, uh, this example goes like this. Science cannot be trusted. It is a big conspiracy to cover up the truth of the Bible and the creation story. Besides, um, I saw a fossil in the creation museum uh, with humans and dinosaurs together, which proves science is wrong. So basically, geology, as we know, is a branch of science and using science to ex uh, that examines fossils through the science of geology to disprove science is absurd, a contradiction and th therefore fallacy in reasoning. Now, this creation um, uh, museum that I mentioned is actually based in America and it's the most ridiculous thing in the world and it, it does indeed display dinosaurs and humans as being living together in the same time at the same time on the on the planet um, and of course it also talks about fossils being planted by god can so you then... prove that they didn't can you, prove, <laughs> can you prove that fossils were not planted by god or aliens or aliens can you prove <laughs> or it or little green men yeah. yeah. Were you there? <laughs> Were you there? <laughs> you haven't answered my question. Can you um, prove that? So I have been listening to a uh, podcast recently with a comedian, American comedian called Louis C.K. He, he, he has um, Hungarian ancestors. He does. He's my favorite comedian. Uh, and it, basically, they had a really famous... Uh, politician uh, on the podcast at the time so uh, he um he wasn't the one who interviewed the politician but um he he asked a couple of questions and it was all going really well and then apparently this politician there was rumors that this politician and a group of other politicians in america are lizards <laughs> Uh, alien lizards uh, that took over the... So basically, it's one of those, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy theories. So yeah. he goes, um, you did so much for this country and you worked with Eisenhower and, and President Sonson, and President Sonson, and you did all these things. Um, and there, is, there are rumors um, that you might be a lizard. And he goes, uh, can you please answer this question? Are you a lizard? And oh my God. I tell you guys, that was a moment and a half. Um, he did not answer that question. He he like told some unrelated story about how he went to the coffee place and somebody bought him a drink or something. I don't know. Um, and Louis C.K. did not let it go. He kept asking him every five minutes, "Are you a lizard?" <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty uncomfortable. Anyways, um, yeah. So there you go. This is the logical fallacy. Oh, I don't know about our listeners, but uh, in my experience, even skeptics sometimes are not really uh, clear about this. So they, they don't necessarily know what, what kind of mm. logical fallacies there are. Mm. And the other thing is that uh, for me, that your example of the creationist museum, you know, when uh, creationists are using 
geology, but they they don't accept certain parts of geology or the geological uh, knowledge is um, is is an example of the double standard as well mm-hmm. and cherry picking. So it's they they kind of overlap. They're not interchangeable, but interconnected. These logical fallacies. So some sometimes the the border between these logical fallacies is not necessarily that clear. Yeah, and actually, more kind of I th- I read about the logical fallacy. I see that really there is like an underlying trend. You know, we have to be vigilant when we make arguments uh, ourselves and yeah. also with yeah. other people, and uh, make sure that the sources are correct. Make sure that yeah. you know one follows f- f- to, from another. And, and yeah, um, you're right. They're not gonna sort of exclude each other, but they're gonna overlap somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a continuum in a way. Yeah, yeah. I I I see it as 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 a as a tree almost. Like you, you, yeah. you everything is a non sequitur, really. That yeah, is, yeah. Every every, every <laughs> exactly. fallacy is a non sequitur. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. then you can divide it into different things, and then you can divide those into different special cases of those things. So you could you could probably, if you work on it, you could probably design an infographic a tree of all the the fallacies and how they relate to each other yeah if you if you have an argument and you try to look at that argument from different aspects mm. yeah that's when when you end up with but do you do you sometimes find yourself in positions uh in situations when you catch yourself applying a logical fallacy <laughs> mm. I sometimes and you actually realize that yeah. uh, okay I, I've just I sometimes it. do that yeah, yeah I'm tempted um, sometimes yeah so, you, you know especially when you go yes but the scientific research says and then you go uh, do I actually know the scientific paper that I can yeah. quote and but you we don't we just know that it's out there somewhere and maybe if we google but sometimes that's not yeah. the case if we google oh not just quickly non sequitur is uh the uh, when the conclusion does not follow the premise yeah, exactly but that's all that's basically just in yes, case yeah, just yeah, in yeah, case yeah, people yeah. haven't heard yes. that before yeah okay fantastic thanks very much let's move on all right um since i think i qualify for the really wrong segment for this episode why don't we jump right into true or false Yelena. Ooh, this is moi. Je suis moi. Uh, <laughs> I am me. Okay, okay. Okay. I am me. Uh, Welcome to the language po- yeah. podcast where we where we butcher every language you have. <laughs> this yeah, every and language. And try to and try pretend to know how every to language speak. and every accent. This <laughs> Good one, Pontus. What are you talking about, Pontus? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fake uh, Russian accent here, guys. Yeah, my fake Italian. Sounds like you... And that this is a very famous a church. <laughs> oh, you, you loved it, don't you? <laughs> this church. Yeah. That's what I heard all the time when I was in Italy as a tour guide. <laughs> Other tour guides are always showing church. The church. A church. This is a church building. That's a church building. Well, if you think about it, the whole Europe is full of churches. If you go to yeah anywhere in rural England, there's like every 10 meters a new church. Yeah. Okay. Yelena, I want you to trick us. And I will try my my hardest um, to do it. <laughs> As always, I've got three items for you guys. Um, 
and uh, one of them is false and two items are true and you need to tell me which ones do you think which one is false and which is true so item number two studies shown that expensive placebos and cheap placebos have the same effect item number two coffee drinkers are more likely to see dead people and item number three a blind person can get his sight back by implanting a tooth in his eye what <laughs> I think this time I'd like Andrush to to have a first guess. I can't remember. You see, I, I'm losing count who went first last time and stuff like that. So, okay, Andrush, go first. Okay. Um, one number one study shown that expensive placebos and cheap placebos have the same effect. <sighs> I can imagine it both ways. Uh, I don't know. Coffee drinkers are more likely to see dead people. That's definitely true. <laughs> okay. Um, Andrushkin testifies as being one of those uh -huh. people who saw them. Okay. <laughs> I see dead people. Yeah, that's I. I know. I know that's uh, anecdotal evidence. Uh, but I remember drinking a lot of coffee, and once a lot of coffee, and and seeing funny things. <laughs> uh, that was are you sure there was just it was coffee I, in irish there, coffee that was quite an experience irish coffee no 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 i it, it was like 52 hours <laughs> that i didn't have a sleep ah uh, i think that okay. might have something to do with so <laughs> yeah 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 but i did drink coffee um so we can list a lot of logical fallacies with that statement of mine <laughs> but still mm. i would say mm. i believe that a blind person can get his side back by implanting a tooth in his eyes. If he does it carefully, maybe. What? <laughs> <laughs> a tooth? Don't try this at home, folks. In his eyes. <laughs> don't, don't try it. I like commentary on the back. Well, planting a, a tooth. What for? What can it do? Okay, since that seems like an obvious choice to go for as being false, I would assume that you wouldn't make it that obvious. So I would go for number one to be false. And my reasoning is that expensive placebos have the extra value of uh, you investing more in that placebo and as we know we do know uh that's a logical fallacy as well <laughs> never mind so the more you invest in something the more you tend to to feel good about it so yeah that could add to the placebo effect so yeah i would say this is the the false so, number one, that's mm -hmm. my choice. All right, Pontus, what what do you think? Mm, I'll tend to agree, but I'll come back to that. So, so, but coffee drinkers are more, more likely to say dead, see dead people. I have no idea why that should be. But Well, Andres had uh, a coffee with something in it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I had lots of coffee. And also, so, he didn't so, sleep for 56 hours. 52. No, I have no idea, but, but it somehow seems like a thing that could be true be, through a way that I can't think of right now. So, you know, it's instinct only. It's not good. But I think that's true. And I also 
I seem to have heard something about sight and teeth. And I also believe that the evolution of teeth is very, very interesting. And it ha didn't evolve as teeth, really. It evolved like something else totally different. And then nowadays it's, well, it's used evolutionary as teeth to chew with. But I think the, the evolution of the tooth is very interesting. So I tend to say that that's true as well. And the reason I think that the first one, expensive placebos, uh, work better than cheap placebos is is uh, you no, know no, no. the actual statement is is they they have the same effect well okay they have the same effect the reason i think that that's true is that i know when you if you taste wine for instance if you believe that the wine is very expensive it's expensive then you also tend to rate it much higher than what you think is cheap wine and it could even be the same wine so I, I do think so. It's something that's expensive. You value more and you think it works better. So, and since that's what placebo is, I think number one is false. So now we're either both right or both wrong. Right. Mm. Um, I'll start from number three. A blind person can get his uh, sight back by implanting a tooth in his eye. Well, my dear listeners, it is true. And I tell you what. Yes. <laughs> When I, I know when I saw it, I just like, what are you talking about? Like what and who and stuff. Gosh, I'll I'll link the article. It's not for the faint-hearted because the eye really looks not okay. This is not okay. This eye is like reptilian eye. Um. So basically, um, it it it's the article talks about this guy called Martin Jones. Mm -hmm. who lost his eyesight um, after an accident at work. And uh, he was uh, offered this really uh, remarkable operation, which implants part of his tooth in his eye. Um, and the procedure uh, apparently was performed fewer than 50 times before in Britain. It, it happened in, in, in England. Uh, it uses the segment of tooth as a holder for a new lens grafted from the skin of the person whose eye is being repaired. And wow. the actual article also shows how the procedure works. It's the most incredible. I mean, first of all, I mean, medicine, right? Unbelievable. Mm. Second of all, how do they, how did they come up with the idea of do, I just still can't understand that. But Pontus, maybe there's something about, like you said, there's something about the tooth development, whatever. And so it has to be the tooth of the person whose eye is being repaired because of the genetics, etc. Um, and yeah, it 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 helped him. He 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 can see again. But like I said, this um, his eye does not look great. <laughs> but I guess it doesn't matter as long as he can see. Um, wow! And it's the most extraordinary thing I have ever read in terms of medical procedure ever. And if dear listeners, you you want to email us your stories or of actual operations that happened please do but that's that's pretty impressive i'd say wow yeah so and um, now let's okay so item... which one is true <laughs> so let's move on to item number two which is the coffee drinkers are more likely to see dead people said andrush <laughs> no um this item is um true yay i told you so there you go 
<laughs> um, and uh, basically, uh, there was a research done by Durham University um, that said that uh, the high caffeine intake is linked to hallucinus, hallucination pro- uh, proneness. Um, and of course, lack of sleep does as well, as we know. Um, so, uh, Andres, there you go. There's yet two things. And um, uh, people with a higher caffeine intake um, from sources such as coffee, tea and caffeinated energy drinks are more likely to report hallucinatory experiences such as hearing voices, seeing things that are not there um, and feeling like somebody's presence in the room, um, etc. And that's... I, to be quite honest with you, before I see, saw this research, I did not know that that's, that is the case. Because I do love coffee and I drink it every day, but I've never drunk enough to have that kind of effect. And I don't mm. want to, to be honest. <laughs> I, think, I, I think it'll... I think it's an it'll interesting be experience, though. Quite spooky. <laughs> yeah. And that leads us to item number one. Hmm. Study shows that expensive placebos and cheap placebos have the same effect, and uh, you're right, guys. It's not. Uh, it's not the case. It's the um, uh, it's the expensive placebos that have more effect than cheap placebos. I mean, as far as the placebos go, because they don't really have medical effect. They just have a, a temporary effect. And uh, for exact, you, you're right, Pontus. It's exact for the same reason that because we're investing more money, uh, we're expecting it to work work better and psychologically it does and so i've tweaked it and made it so that it's got the same effect because i thought i'm gonna catch you because it's placebo and placebo doesn't work and whatever so yeah but i didn't this is why boiron has to keep up with the prices on the market yeah cheap homeopathy doesn't yeah work. cheap homeopathy doesn't you work. have to you have to charge a lot for exactly it. good one exactly. good one good one okay i'll try to be more clever next time no that was great it was great fun so thank you very much. I I really yeah. appreciated it. Um, mm, it. I'm 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 gonna have to look up that the uh, tooth in in the eyes thing. That's oh, yeah. okay. That was that was great. Uh, thank you very much, Yelena. All right, you're welcome. Yelena. That's me. Uh, since this is almost the end of the show. I'd like to finish with a nice quote. Do you have one for us today? I do indeed. This quote comes from Douglas Noel Adams. Uh, to some people, might he might be known as author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he said, The invention of the scientific method and science is, I'm sure we'll all agree, the most powerful intellectual idea, the most powerful framework for thinking and investigating and understanding and challenging the world around us that there is and it rests on the premise that any idea is there to be attacked if it is withstands the attack then it leaves to fight another day and if it doesn't withstand the attack then down it goes i love that i love that quote and yeah i i keep telling people about that uh why science matters and why it's the best method ever created by humans Still, for some, uh, doesn't count. They don't care. Do you remember uh, John Stewart reacting to some of Neil deGrasse Tyson's explanations? Mm. I don't remember what it was about, but I remember his face. You know, I fucking love science. <laughs> I fucking love science. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Indeed. And on that note, I think it's time to finish the show. 
Thank you very much, Yelena. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, hope you'll be with us next week as well. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Sorry, hang on a second guys. I I'll I'll step out. You you can you carry on. My my cat is just crying outside outside. Let me hold on a sec. You you carry on talking whatever and Okay. Why are you I crying? Think, why are you crying? Smelly cat, mm. smelly cat. <laughs> What are they feeding you? Smelly cat, smelly cat. That's not your fault. Why are you crying? Why are you crying, sweet Oh, she's going to be on a show now. The cat. Uh, hello, I'm back. Sorry about that. Hey. With, with the cat? Well, it's... I... It, no. 2012 and 2006. Helvetes jävla skit. Fire away. Fuck. Bastard fuck so anyway. Oh um <laughs> Is that the theme or <laughs> Oh bollocks and now that went over that Bollocks never mind just just copy paste and I'll I'll do the uh, the uh, the, the format I am, yeah. I am I am I am I am I am yeah Never mind the bollocks is a famous uh album <laughs> Is that right? Never Actually, mind the bollocks Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay Sex Pistols. Oh, I think that was the first album. Pistols. It's called Never Never Mind the Bollocks. Wow.